Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. Hi, Jess. Hello. Hi, Tony. Welcome. How thank are you. you? Very well, thank you. Um, I thought I would just introduce you to everyone. Um, I'm sure you probably don't need much of an introduction, but uh, in case someone has just been punching in random passwords into the Zoom meeting and stumbled into this room. You, of course, are a multi, multi, multi award winning writer, director, producer, EP, showrunner. Uh, you are the co-founder of Matchbox Pictures and Tony Ayers Productions and have a very impressive body of work behind you, which is not only impressive, but slightly intimidating to um, a young creative. But I'm, I'm curious where you began with that journey what were the you know what were the first films or tv shows that you saw as a young man or as a young boy that made you want to join this industry i guess uh maybe one starting point was that my sister was in love with clark gable and she (laughs) saw gone with the wind 19 times and she dragged me to it three times before i reached the age of um 12 so three times before puberty and i think that left a a lasting impression on me. I, 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 I was always drawn to storytelling and to the, the, the narrative. And I think a lot of it was because, you know, when I had a very tricky childhood and, you know, like, you know, like we were immigrants, we were very, we were dirt poor. I used to live in the back of Chinese restaurants and my mother was, you know, had all kinds of mental health issues. And as a consequence I sort of realized the day as a way of helping me get to sleep. You know, that, that, that was my sort of relationship to storytelling. And, mm. um, and so, you know, stories became really important as a way of kind of controlling the world. You know, like if you couldn't control the world outside of you, I, I was trying to tell, you know, like I, I used to tell myself stories. Like I used to go to bed and make up martial arts movies. And, um, and, and I used to make superheroes up as well because I used to read comic books when I was a kid. Wow. So all of that stuff stuck with me through uh, my university years. And I, you know, like I, I sort of think of myself more as a storyteller really than a filmmaker because I, I initially started out write, writing yeah. short stories and then as a way of kind of expressing myself I, I, you know, I went through a period of writing very bad poetry, which I have burnt. Um, <laughs> I was like the world's worst poet. And, um, but, but then, you know, like I, I, you know, prose was a way of helping me understand the world, expressing my feelings of kind of, you know, it became something, words became a, a mediating tool for emotion for me. And, um, and then, I went to university and then I went to art school and, and, you know, like I was doing literature and then, and at the end of that, I suddenly thought, well, what if I put pictures and words together and do screen stuff? And so I went to film school and, you know, so, so from there, that, that's kind of how it all started. Because you, you had um, a few documentary shorts, I think, before the beginning of your career. Um, do you just see that as part of that evolution or were you kind of drawn to, uh, drawn to true stories, I guess, and the importance of telling them? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I was really fortunate. I had a few opportunities to direct documentaries early on and I made, um, I made three or four. Mm. And what was so relevant about making documentaries for me was that I kind of learned about um, I, it, it was part of a process that I developed about how to make work and my documentaries were quite stylized so they weren't like, like they were quite sort of fictional documentaries yes. you know? and then um, I found that the, the drama work I was making was very researched and aimed to be truthful and th- so those two things married very early on in, in my sort of in my storytelling process. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I noticed looking at your work that um, quite a few of the dramas that you've created are based on true stories, you know, whether that's your home stories or um, Sammy's Ali's wedding, uh, family law. 
what about it? What about true stories and, and biographies do you think is often better than fiction? I think that what happens when you try to create from uh, a vacuum is that what you, you end up regurgitating tropes, you know, so, so the things that you make are kind of like, you know, you know, because something has to come, you know, like we, you know, creating isn't just kind of conjuring up nothing, you know, out of nothing. It, it, I, I think of creating as a little bit alchemical in that you put elements together, you put things together that, um, and then they, you know, either from your imagination or from life, but you put them together and they come out as something else, you know, whether it's gold or whether it's lead, you know, like it depends, depends on your luck sometimes. Um, yeah. it, it's still, you know, like it isn't, I, I think of it as an alchemical thing. So one of the things that made for me, and, you know, like as a dramatist, it, it, I've always found that the things that happen in real, real life tend to beggar belief beyond the mm. things that you can think of. And, and yet they still feel authentic because they kind of happened. <laughs> you know, like, so, and, you know, as a, again, as a dramatist, what you're always looking for is something that feels both truthful, but also mm. fresh and original. I, I felt that watching Ali's wedding, you know, you, you almost couldn't come up with some of the things that happened to Asama's life. You know, they, you know, you, you couldn't create that. And that's what makes the comedy so wonderful is it's, it's, you just, yeah, you just wouldn't believe it. Ali's weddings came from, I, I was directing Asama in a TV movie called Saved with uh, Claudia Carvan. We were doing a night shoot one night. And um, we're waiting for the lights to set, set up or, you know, like, you know, freezing, sitting under blankets. And um, uh, Asama just told us the story of his first marriage. <laughs> and, he, 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 and he framed it like it lasted for four hours and 37 minutes. And then he, yeah. and then he just told us this story. And Claudia and I just like, our jaws just got lower and lower <laughs> as he told, told us the story. And, and, you know, like it was, you know, the next day I just thought, that, that, that's a movie. So, you know, mm. And that we started. Well, it took us many years to kind of get it to screen, but it was it was really from that night. When I'm curious about that, that that process of finding a good story. That you know, often you know, you might hear something like his story, which is just so clearly such a great idea. But how often are you you know picking something for development that you know there's something good in there, but it actually takes a huge amount of work and massaging and and what is that process? How do you do that? I, I think that you know. The thing is, there are stories and then there is craft, you know, and the story, um, you know, a story could be anything from a, a counselling session, a diary entry, a short story, or, a, you know, like a 10-part TV series, you know, it could be any of those things sometimes. Um, and the thing that, that you mediate with is craft, you know, your ability to find a way to communicate that story to an audience. And so, so the dramatist's role is, is to meet, you know, is to mediate. And I mean, I always choose stories based on two, two things, um, head and heart, basically. So head, a story, I have feel it, so it has to have something to say that I kind of want to say. Like sometimes you might yeah. think, oh, that's an amazing story, but actually, oh, you know, you're, you're end up, you're, you know, supporting white supremacy by telling that story. So you better not tell that story. You know, like, you know, it's yeah. going to be something that I kind of feel like I, I want to say and kind of can contribute to a cultural dialogue. So that's quite part of the story. But overwhelmingly, the other part of the story is that it has to have heart. Like it has to, it has to move me and it has to make me feel because mm. I feel like, you know, what we're doing, and, you know, actors in particular are the forefront of this, Actors are, are, are the, the way that we can get our stories to emotionally affect, you know, the audience. And, and, yeah. and, and as a dramatist, you know, what we really want to do is affect the audience emotionally. You know, you can, you can sort of win them over, win over their minds. But, you know, like if you re want to affect real change and, and have, have real purpose in what you're doing, it's about actually win, winning their hearts. Yeah, oh, I think that's very evident in the work that, that you make. Um, I'm, I'm curious, there's another element of, uh, I guess, the choosing stories for development 
that I've noticed, um, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this, are, are the trends that follow industry. So it feels like Game of Thrones comes out and all of a sudden there's a million fantasy shows. Underbelly happened and we were just wall-to-wall true crime in this country. Uh, you know, how much, how much do those trends affect the decisions that you make and, and would you recommend that young up-and-coming writers really kind of take note of what's happening and write to that or are you suggesting maybe a trendsetter, I guess? Uh, trends are really hard to follow, particularly in Australia, because there's a lag in, de- in development. Like, there's a real lag, say, I, I mean, th- this is my LA experience. So I'd kind of go over to LA and do those general meetings, and people would tell me what they were after, and I would, I would think, oh, yeah, great. So you want, they want a, a, a superhero show or a supernatural show or vampires or ghosts. And so I'd, come back yeah. to, I'd come back to Australia. And I think about it and put in, you know, like start developing and then, you know, like 18 months later, I'd go back and the trend has moved way on from there. Yeah. Like, you know, like the problem with follow, trying to follow a trend is you're always going to be too late, you know, be, be, because what they do, what mm. those, what those um, commissioners and buyers are doing when, when they tell you that they, that this is kind of what they're after, they, they, they're giving you an ambit claim. But they're also telling the, the same story to all of the studios who have mm. a whole bunch of uh, people who are working, um, you know, like, you know, they've got a whole bunch of creators in their books. Like, you know, like I might have one project, um, but, you know, like uh, Paramount Television will have 300 projects and, the, yeah. and, and one of them will be exactly what that, that buyer wants in that moment. So I think it's a common mistake we make in Australia because, you know, we're, we're a small industry um, and so we take these crumbs of information and we sort of, you know, turn them into, you know, try to spin them into gossamer or something like that. But actually, I think when, when I think that when they tell you what they want, what they mean is I want that now. And if you've got something like that, great. Yeah. Someone is going to, you know, like in two days, I'm going to get 10 versions of that story because, you know, the studios will have 10 ver- versions of that story. I'm, I'm very reluctant to sort of follow trends. I think that what I would say is what is useful is having more than one idea. Yeah. And, um, and I've always been a bit of a butterfly. So I like, I, you know, like I, I always have lots of ideas and, you know, I kind of, you know, there's lots of things that, are, that affect me. And, um, and so I, I would just kind of say, you know, if you're creating and if you've got five or six ideas, you might be lucky and one of those ideas will be exactly what the, the buyer is looking for at that time. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Um, I'm, I'll take us back and just talk about um, what you're up to at the moment because you're, of course, a uh, showrunner on Clickbait, which is a new Netflix series that's happening. Yep. Would you mind telling us a bit about Clickbait and who's involved creatively? Okay, it's it's Netflix show. It's kind of like described as a social media thriller. I, I think that's what, what they're describing. I mean, Netflix <laughs> keep a pretty tight rein on what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not allowed to say. But I sort of think I described it as a bit like, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's a thriller where you learn a new clue to the central crime every episode, but you go to a different point of view mm-hmm. every episode. So I use the, the La Ronde okay. device that, that Christos used in the slap and, the, you know, like, and, and so it's a series of rotating points of view, but it's also, uh, it's, it's got a bit of, like, it's more like conventional um, mystery crime thriller because every time, every time you go to a new point of view, you learn a different clue. So I, I described it as like the, the slap meets Cluedo. Sounds great. Hopefully it'll be fun. You know, and, and you know, there is serious intent behind it. I mean, it is yeah. an attempt to look at how we've all become very fractured as human beings because of the, the effect of technology and particularly the internet on us. And, yeah. Um, and the, it, yeah, it's supposed to be about, you know, the multiple identities that we all have to assume these days. Um, you know, you present your Instagram face and, you know, you present your Facebook version, you know, like it, it, it's a, it, it yeah. touches in those areas. Oh no, it feels, I mean, it, similarly to what you're saying it, it, before, it feels like it's a, a show that still speaks to something that's very like real and very um, pertinent to now. Um, I, hope, and- I, I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, of course, you're a showrunner on, uh, on clickbait, which is not a term that we often use in Australia. Can you explain the difference between a, a showrunner and an executive producer for us? 
I, I'm, I, and I'm sort of more like a showrunner in the American system because the, mm. you know, Clickbait is a show that was set in Oakland and we're, and, you know, we're shooting it in, in Melbourne. So, you know, so it's, it's, it's almost like a, it's like a footloose production set, but it, it's more like an American show. I mean, basically my, my job is the creative boss. Like I do a lot of rewriting of the scripts to try mm. to make them all fit together. In the American system, the writers only get two drafts. In the Australian system, the writers get three drafts. And so the writers get two drafts and they hand it over to the showrunner and then the showrunner finishes it. So I, I, you know, I I, I do a fair bit of rewriting, writing and rewriting. I've written officially, I think two or maybe three episodes of the, of the show. And then I work with the directors are you know basically on the style of the show the vision for the show you know like i'm i'm working with the i'm doing again in the american system i mean the directors are only in the edit for a fairly limited amount of time compared to australia Mm. so i I basically take over the edits and i also am doing all the the music and the visual effects and graphics and you know and grading (laughs) so so is it the role in the you know kind of system it's it's the kind of creative boss but um i guess you know like the the only equivalent that i've had to this is directing feature films Mm -hmm. so it's like you're 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 like the director in a feature film so but you know you still have to you know i um i still have to work with like a huge number of people and i have to try Mm -hmm. to you know, you, you, so it, it's still a you know predominantly collaborative job. Mm-hmm. Is it? Is the, do you think the model is going to be more widely used in Australia? Does it create a you know a consistency throughout a show that maybe you wouldn't have if you didn't have someone who's kind of you know start to finish in in that process? Well, when I was at Matchbox, I you know we always used that model of having a, a writer producer, and I think that part of Matchbox's success was that it was one of the first companies to really kind of cement that idea into mm. the series, bake it into the show and, and sort of bake mm. it into the budget. It is a little bit more expensive than, than the, the way that um, TV is normally made, but uh, we, we swore by it in terms of, mm. it, it just felt like giving the show a unified creative vision and solving things because you know, television happens so fast and, you know, it can be so crazy. And unless you have someone who's, whose role it is to basically sort of look after the, you know, the, the integrity of the show and the scripts, uh, I mean, often the actors do that as well. Like, you know, you know, cause, cause you have different writers and different directors. Often the actors are the people who have to yeah, say, my character just wouldn't say that line. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the showrunner is the person <laughs> who works with the actors, you know, and, you know, yeah. you know, and, you know, is the person who supports the actors and say, yeah, you're right. You know, you know, or you need to rewrite this, you know? So, so it's about having someone who does that. And I mean, often as well, when you're doing a, a show, you know, and there are lots of different writers and directors involved, you know, you can have production logistics uh, pivot you away from the true meaning of the scene or, you know, like, you know, the, yeah. In production, particularly in television, rewriting is almost as important as the original writing. Mm. Because, you know, you, you'll suddenly be told, okay, we can't use that location um, or one of the actors is not, you know, like, you know, is sick and you've got to, you've got to, we've got to re- shift this around and to do that, you've got to do that. Let's, um, uh, uh, you know, you have to rewrite the scene really fast and, you need someone who actually understands why that scene was there in the first place and yeah. the importance of that scene to, to, to take up the responsibility of rewriting because otherwise, mm. you know, you get into the edit and, you know, it could be, it can really, you know, and, so, and the weird thing about storytelling is that even when you're making it, sometimes you don't actually, again, it's to do with that alchemical thing. You don't actually know what is going to be so crucial until you're in the edit, until you put it all together. And sometimes it is um, like a look from an actor in response to a, to a line that if you didn't actually understand why that was important, you may, you may be able to just kind of fudge over it or not get the look. 
And mm. sometimes that moment is actually like pivotal to the, to the whole episode. Yeah, it's, it's making sure that creativity stays at the front and centre of the process. And do you reckon a, a great showrunner is someone who does have that background, not just in producing, but actually writing or directing, someone who actually understands logistics of a set and, and how actors work? And it, it must be quite a rare um, collection of skills to find, you know, someone who's done all of it. Really. Well, I, I, you know, the reality is that I think there are very few people who can do all of it and everyone just, yeah. you know, basically adapts the, the thing to their strengths and weaknesses. So... So, so, and, and, you know, because I used to, when I was first finding out about show running, I used to sort of have this thing of, oh, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. I got, you know, like, you know, used to have that imposter syndrome. And, yeah. um, and so what I sort of realized was, well, you know, my strong suit is this, this and this. And so I'd focus mm -hmm. on that and then just get other people to do the things I couldn't do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, because we, you know, we, it, this is a collaboration. We were, you know, and, you know, you, it's actually yeah. better, better to acknowledge that than to try to pretend and then just have one bit of it, you know, realized really badly. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think that, um, you know, different showrunners run shows differently. Like there are so, yeah. some showrunners, you know, even in the American system who just never turn up on set and other showrunners who are there sitting by the director, whispering into the director's ear, the entire yeah. shoot, you know, like, and everyone does it differently. And the American yeah. system, because it's bigger, it actually um, accommodates that, facilitates that. For instance, in the, in a, like there are all these other roles in the in a, in America that I didn't know about that I've only just learned about. Like there is our producing directors in America, so they're the director who sets up the show usually, but stays on set and works with all the other directors. You know. Oh so, wow! That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, who'd have guessed? Who'd have thought that? I, I had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> that director yeah. is there for the showrunners who don't want to be on, who can't be on set. And, and I imagine if you're working in that kind of, I mean, often American shows, I was curious to know, you know, with Matchbox merging with NBC Universal, you know, these are these like humongous kind of studios that they actually require, I imagine, so many more people to kind of keep that flow going, you know, often on, on a scale size, Australian productions are much smaller. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah. it requires more collaboration of organization i don't know how it's going to shift after covid you know like yeah i mean I, you know maybe crew maybe crews will get smaller all over the world you know, like, I, I don't know i think there are all I was kinds actually of conversations curious about that. yeah i mean i was wondering um you know have you been using this time to uh put your resources into development and and looking at you know scripts that only require four actors is that kind of where your head is at at the moment a little bit of both, like, you know, because I've been post on post on clickbait. We still got two episodes to film and hopefully we will get to them, you know, sooner rather than later <laughs> before, before I die. Um, but, you know, so I've been doing the post on clickbait and, you know, in development, in, in a fairly rapid development on a new show because there's, uh, there's a great interest in it. And, um, and I'm also helping out on a show in New Zealand, which starts filming in a few weeks. So... So, so I've, I've sort of kept it fairly busy, but certainly I kind of really just in the last week or so, I've suddenly started thinking, you know, we've got to talk about what's happening now as well and what's happening with COVID. So I'm talking to someone about, about a, a COVID yeah. show. Mm. Keep keeping up with the time. Well, it just kind of like really struck me that, I mean, it, we were having a conversation about something else and then... Mm in the middle of that conversation I just sort of thought oh no you know what we should be doing is this this COVID show. It'll be very interesting to see all the kind of dystopic future stories that come out of this time you know one year from now. Even, even the, th the thing is like you know it's it's such a profound global experience and moment mm -hmm. like you know how do you pretend it didn't happen? Yeah. Yeah so in a way if you don't talk about COVID, you're talking about the past. You're writing, yeah. you're writing a, a historical fiction. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. But, you know, potentially dramas will all, I mean, I, I wonder that. I knew, I've heard that, I think, you know, Neighbours and Home and Away have gone back to shooting and you kind of, you know, I'm curious to know, are they acknowledging it or are they kind of filming, you know, in this fantasy world, this fantasy yeah. universe in which COVID yeah. never existed and um, everyone just happens to stand one foot five metres apart for no reason. 
Yeah, but but in, in a weird way, I sort of think that neighbours and home and away are really perfect vehicles mm. for talking about COVID because they, you know, they're shows that talk about day to day life and you know, yeah. you know, ordinary relationships and people, and that they often those shows often respond very quickly to things that are happening in the moment. So yeah. I would I would actually be surprised if they didn't talk about COVID at some point. Yeah, but but you're right. I mean, if it if it goes on for years to come, you can't you kind of can't get around it. You have to yeah, yeah. you have to talk. Yeah. And also, yeah. you know, how, how do you date a show? Like, you know, you know, what, what, you know, what year, when did you, like, when did you, you know, we've got a show coming out and we were going to set it in 2020, 2020, 2020 or 2021, but now we've got yeah. February 2020, yeah. because otherwise yeah. you know, everything looks weird. Like, you know, you know, when you watch <laughs> TV now, everyone looks a bit weird when they, when they're sort of too close to each other. Touching each other and yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> Um, I was thinking, I mean, I, I might just do one last question because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm hogging you, but, uh, but just on that idea, I mean, I, I felt like when I was watching The Slap, uh, not sorry, not The Slap, um, when I was watching Stateless, you know, that was, it felt, it felt like it was a show that you couldn't have actually made 10 years ago, even though it, you know, was speaking, speaking to so much that a lot of Australia witnessed in um, Baden and Woomera. What do you... What do you look at, at the stories that are happening now? Obviously, COVID is one of them, that are happening in the world right now that you want to tell in the future that you think will be kind of, we'll be looking back and, and having to make historical conversations about the past that are obviously very relevant to our present. The, the thing for me that is, you know, like, I mean, I'm often drawn to things that I just don't understand or I'm trying to get my head around and, um, you know, the recurring conversations I'm having with my friends is uh, the, about the polarization of society and mm. the, the effect of technology in polarizing society, um, the kind of radicalization of young men um, through, you know, and, and the white, how white supremacy works, how that's tying into the internet, YouTube, you mm. know, Facebook, Twitter, you know, like just, just how, that's, how, how those technologies are really affecting human interaction and, and but both in a positive, but also in a negative way and how, you know, and how we're changing as a result of that. So, so that's kind of like, that's the stuff that I'm just reading about in my, in my day, day to day life. And because of the way I work, you know, like, you know, I'll, at some point I, you know, mm. I'll, I'll read a story that goes, that, that'll go ka-ching, that's the one, you know, that's the story that yeah. I have to tell and that's how I'm going to tell it. And I'll, and I'll work out how to, how to do it. So, I mean, that, I mean, basically how to be, you know, how to be a human being, a decent human being now, you know, you know, is, I, I, th I think it's baffling. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's so week, you know, it, it's, I'm sure it's on everyone's minds and. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how you even participate in that and what, and what yeah. is the value of your participation in that? You know, like, you know, the, I think those are the things that are, are um, you know, that, that some, some, some part of my work will speak to that at some point. Yeah, oh, but I look forward to hearing what that is. Yeah, I look forward to finding out what that is as well. <laughs> um, thank you, Tony. I, I'll just check if, if Alex wants to jump in and take over this conversation with questions from our participants. I think we have about 120 eager viewers. Um, if not, I have plenty of questions to still keep okay. going, Alex. We can keep checking. There's just one more question that sometimes comes up about uh, actors and directors. Like, what do you, what do you, what sort of appeals to you about with direct, with actors when you see them, and and what makes you work well with them? That always comes up. So I just thought it'd be good to mention that. For me, I, I'm I'm just so full of admiration for actors because it's you know like you you always you know you admire the things that you can't do. I cannot act. You know, honestly, cannot cannot act. The one thing you haven't done. Well, I did try at high school. <laughs> and, um, and I just, yeah, yeah, it, it just is not part of my skill set. Uh, and so, you know, like I, I, I admire all, all actors, you know, I think, I think it's such a courageous profession and, you know, and I also understand and see how difficult it can be and, and how, how the, the, the kind of, you know, the interface between the, the business sides of the industry versus the creative sides of the industry and actors are often at the, you know, like at the pointy end of that. So, so, I mean, but for me, casting is always very, very specific. You know, like it's always very, you know, like you can't, you know, 
you can really admire an actor, but they can still be wrong for the role. You know, like you know, mm. not, not someone who thinks that every actor can do everything. Um, mm. I, I got this weird. I, I, I think you know. I think I'm not sure, but because I haven't directed for a while, but I think I've had this weird Chinese element sort of thing that I used to use with casting, which was that I always used to try to cast. Uh, you know, like if an actor made me feel as though they were a certain element and the character was a certain element, like water, fire, earth. You know. Um, I didn't ever use wood, <laughs> water, fire, earth, air. There were the elements, um, and, um, and and metal. Yeah, that, that, and and then if the character spoke those things, I always used to try to marry those up, and and that that was probably as bad as scientific as I got. I love the image. I guess wooden is not um, an adjective you really want to put with an actor. No, so. no, no, you can't mention it in an audition. <laughs> I want you to be more wooden. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm, uh, I'll move on to the questions then, shall I, for the minute? Hi. James? Hello. Hey there. Um, hi, Tony. Uh, James Mason here. Um, I just wanted to ask you, obviously, it seems like a very concerning time in a lot of aspects. I guess with the political state in this country at the moment, a lot of funding being withdrawn from our industry and, and various other things like that. What, what do you currently see as the future of our industry? Yeah. I, I, I mean, like, I'm a little bit militant about this at the moment because I feel like, you know, we are in a situation where the arts are under attack. I mean, I, I mean, the arts is all, has, has, it's always been difficult, but I, I think we, it is, I feel like what we have to do as a collective of artists is be, really be prepared to speak whenever we can, in any way we can, about the importance of storytelling and particularly the importance of storytelling in asserting and in defining a national identity and an ever-evolving national identity. And, you know, I think we've got, uh, we have to try to find a way to speak to the people in the centre around that. I don't, I don't think it's particularly useful for us to be, you know, saying that to us, to each other as much as it is to people who don't understand that the connection or the relationship between um, national identity, which I think even conservative coalition governments would, would say that's a really important thing, that we have a national identity. And then I, I would kind of say, well, we have a national identity because we tell each other stories. You know, that's how st identities are, are formed. And so um, I think that we have to be prepared. I, you know, I don't quite know what the lines of action are at the moment, but I think we have to be prepared to be a little bit more militant than we've been before. Um, and I, I suspect it's going to be around the next election. Uh, apart from that, you know, you know, you can just lobby your local, you know, politicians because we are a, a government subsidized, you know, industry, you know, like we're small and we, you know, we don't have the market size, like we're not like the American industry. Um, uh, we don't have the market size to, you know, so our arts, uh, like most countries in the world, by the way, our arts uh, sectors have to be subsidised. Cool. Thank you. Good afternoon, Tony. Hey, Jasper. How are you, sir? A bit of a double-barrelled question based on that it's obviously going to be complex to get on film set, assuming the virus is still active in any way. And also you were saying how a lot of the stories to come will have to reflect or should reflect what the experiences we're going through. But contrary to that, won't we also need to escape from what we're experiencing? And therefore... The actual idea of perhaps historical fiction relating to national identity or fantasy will come to the fore. And because of that and the complexity of shooting, do you see yourself using um, this new concept of um, the 8K background imagery instead of green screen, which obviously um, computer games are so mm. advanced with? Thank you. I think, yeah, I think that we're, we're going to end up using technology more to try to create worlds that we can't create safely. Uh, I mean, I, it's just an area that I'm not particularly familiar with, but I think you're absolutely right that, that people, you know, as you know, as much as some some work will speak to now, that there will always be a demand for work that doesn't that that you know has an escapist element to it or can be allegorical in a different way. I, I don't know what the upshot, you know, how it's all going to land land yet. You know, like whether you know in 12 months time there's a vaccine and you know things will be easier or whether we just will have to constantly factor in we'll have to factor in like you know i think people are talking about going into isolation as a group 
making things as a group and maybe making work that way. I think it'll be harder for background artists, I think, you know, because of the, the fly-in, fly-out nature of that, you know. So the, they're, they're, they're going to be the, the kinds of questions that we'll be dealing with, you know, the, the practical day-to-day -day of how, how you make this stuff. Mm, well, thank you. Hi, Tony. Hi, Jerry. I um, just got a question about you. How do you divide your time these days in terms of Matchbox and Tony Ayres Productions? Are you more on your own now or are you with Matchbox or...? I'm entirely Tony Ayres Productions now. I'm kind of... I predominantly work towards an international market. So, there's, you know, like, so I'm kind of... Most of my shows are either set in America or the UK or if they're set in Australia, they're kind of in a slightly more global sort of way uh, and I'm looking at something in New Zealand as well so so um, I'm yeah I, I, I just sort of pivoted away from where I, when I was at Matchbox I was completely domestic facing because that was the nature of the company and what the company required and I personally was interested in trying to look at international opportunities and so that's you know I'm giving it a go we'll see yeah we'll see Tony, it's Alex here. I've just had a, um, a question from someone who wants me to ask you, what excites you in an audition and what do you look for? I guess um, in an audition, it will just be really what, whether the person is right for the role. <laughs> it's kind of hard to know beyond that. Like, or, I mean, it's always the authenticity, you know, like if, but every character is different as well. Like, you know, there are, you know, you, you, you can do a big audition for a character who has, you know, who, you know, who is not a big character, then that won't, won't work for me. You know, like it, it's just about a, the, a, aligning the, the performance to the character. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Tony. How are you? Hi. Thanks to you and Jess for doing this. It's been excellent. Um, I just have a question about content and we're talking about Australian content and telling authentic Australian stories. I think in the past, and this is a sweeping generalisation, of course, but Australian content, Australian TV and film has, uh, I guess, been quite esoteric, you know, slash quirky and, and therefore has struggled to find an international audience. And having lived in the States for a while, you realise just how little Australian film has been seen over there that we hold quite dear, but just didn't, for, just for some reason, didn't translate in the US, for, for example. The UK obviously has an easier time of it, but do you think that, that we're getting better at telling Australian stories and having it translate and, and drawing a universal audience or an international audience? I, I think it's, I, I, hopefully it's a work in progress. Hopefully it is happening. I mean, one of the things about, say, for America is that Americans just didn't understand the Australian accent. And, uh, and, um, and that was a big obstacle for selling Australian work in, in America. But what is happening, and I think it's because of the streaming services um, mm. and the uh, American audiences, you know, and, and uh, don't forget America, which is the, you know, like has been traditionally the biggest market and the market that we've all sort of aimed for. Uh, America is a very parochial country. Mm. You know, like the people don't travel. People are very, you know, you know, American focused and what the streaming services seem to be doing, particularly, you know, like the Netflix effect is actually giving people an opportunity to hear other accents. And, and, and so British work has already started penetrating the American market much more than it previously had. And mm. hopefully Australian work will as well. Um, mm. And it will still probably feel a little bit niche at first, but, I, you know, you, you just have to hope that an Australian work will break out and speak to the American market in, you know, a significant way, which will, you know, and from there, there'll, there'll be a kind of cascading effect. Mm, thank you. I mean, I mean you hope, you hope. Mm. Hello, Tony, Jonathan Chan, listening from Sydney. Just a question about diversity. Where do you feel the Australian industry is at, in terms of diversity? And also, where do you feel the direction need to go i think that it, it, i mean it was it's it's really interesting for me because i kind of get asked questions like this all the time because you know i'm the chinese filmmaker and um and when i started out I, like i made a lot of our work that was very autobiographical and um about you know my mother and my sister and you know store stories that were very personal to me because of the way that you know like i was using writing to sort of 
you know, try to understand things. And then I sort of realized afterwards, oh, you know, I'm, I'm the Chinese filmmaker. So I kept getting approached with, you know, with these projects about the history of the Chinese in Australia and, you know, like, and, the, you know, like, so, so I did a lot, you know, working from those, those margins of identity were really important to me at the beginning of my career for personal reasons. And then as I kind of kept going along, Again, you know, I, th I think that, you know, we tend to replicate ourselves. We, you know, like our taste is an expression of ourselves. So I was primarily drawn to telling other stories. Like when I wasn't no longer sort of so much interested in telling my own story, I was drawn to telling other stories. And I found that I was drawn to telling stories from people from unrepresented backgrounds. For instance, you know, like I worked on a comedy series called Maximum Choppage. I did a did a show called The Family Law, and, and you know, there were, you know, Asian-Australian background stories, um, you know, Ali's Wedding, I've worked on, even, you know, like, and the, the, the issue of representation was always very important to me in terms of even within a show that wasn't specifically about, you know, coming from somewhere else or, you know, it wasn't at the foreground, but for me, representing what my version of Australia was, was always important to me. And as a consequence of all of that, like in the early part of my career, I was very much like over there. I was, a, I was very marginal, like hardly anyone knew who I was, hardly any, certainly no one saw my work, but it always did really well at awards and things. Like, like I always was, they were kind of successful failures. <laughs> they were, they were um, and, and now, sort of almost 30 years later, I haven't sort of changed in terms of where I stand, in terms of what, wanting to, being drawn to stories told, told from other cultures or from other perspectives, because that's what I, I'm emotionally drawn to. But it's like the whole market has sort of moved towards me. And um, I, I, I saw it happening about in earnest about three, four or five years ago, I think. Um, up until then, I would have said nothing really has changed. You know, you, there was a bit of lip service to it, but nothing really has changed. But now I think it really seriously has changed. And it was a top-down change. And I think it's to do, like, you look at um, Sally Riley, who is head of uh, drama at the a ABC. Like, you know, she is an Indigenous woman. And so she's really interested in telling those stories. Like, it, it is personal for her. And, and it's kind of personal for me. You know, look at Debbie Lee, who's the head of, development at Matchbox, you know, like, and she was head of comedy at the ABC all those years, but, you know, like, it's very personal for her as well to, to be, to tell, tell these stories. And I, and I think that as there has, has been some, some sort of generational change, I think that that, that has led to greater opportunities. And, and now, you know, like, if, honestly, if you make an SBS show or you make an ABC show, you have to, you know, you have to, you know, you know, it is a constant question that you're having with the broadcaster, you know, like, how is this show representative of uh, a, a genuine Australia? How does this show truly reflect Australia? So, you know, like, I th so I think that in terms of for actors from different backgrounds, I think that, you know, I, I hope that this is, you know, an opportunity for their work to be seen. Hello, Tony. Um, Hi, Alan. Hi, how are you? Um, I was just wondering, as a filmmaker and a, a showrunner, do you finish films and go, wow, perfect? Or do you always go, I really want to go back and fiddle? Or, or where do you sit on all that? I usually finish something and go, <laughs> oh, no. And then I go, oh, no, someone's got to see it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's always slightly terrifying. And, and then, some, you know, and every, every now and then you, you know, I, I tend not to so much look backwards very much, but every now and then you do look back at something you've seen. It's kind of like when you see photos of yourself when you were younger and you think, oh, I wasn't so bad looking, you know, like I didn't, I didn't look that bad. So why did I think I looked so bad at the time? You know, I'm a bit like that with my work, you know, like I'll kind of go back and I'll see something. I think, oh, that wasn't so bad. Why did I think it was so, so shit at the time? But I think I've got, you know, like, I do think I have imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people in our business do. Well, we're just going, going to go back to Jess for a few oh. final questions. Hi, Tony. Because I was having a look at some of the participants and I noticed that many of them, most of them performance, a lot of them are um, multidisciplinary as well, like yourself, or, or trying to move into those avenues. And I thought I'd just ask you if you have any advice for, you know, a performer who wants to get into directing or writing, producing. Um, many of them, almost in the performance, a lot of them, you know, have, have any advice on making those transitions? I, I actually think it's a really great fit. 
and, and interestingly, a lot of the writers that I work with have backgrounds as actors um, because actors are, are, are really good at writing character voices. You know, like, you know, the actors that I've, the writers who were actors that I've worked with write great dialogue because they're used to channeling voices. So I think it's actually a really useful skill. I think that the pathway is, the thing to remember is that it is a collaboration and I, I, I sort of, in a weird way, like if I, if I have been successful in at all in my career, it's actually just been about being able to work well. That plays well with others, basically. I think that's what I do. You know, like I'm, I'm good at um, working with people. And I think that, you know, if you are going to transition from in front of the camera to becoming a maker, uh, it is actually understanding and appreciating all the other people that you will need to work with to make that happen. And to do that wisely, choose that wisely. And then, then the rest of it is kind of, you know, about skilling up. And, you know, and there are certain mechanical things you can do. There are writing courses you can do. I, I would sort of say, um, again, the success of Matchbox and the success of uh, any success my company has is, it's, is that it, it puts writing at the, at the forefront. And I think, again, actors understand that because actors have to speak the words, you know, like... If, yeah. You know, you know good writing, you appreciate good writing, and you can't make good work without good writing. So it's about valuing writers, whether you write yourself or whether you work with writers. I think it's about valuing it, valuing it um, you know, like being very tough on it, being, very, you know, like, because, you know, it has to, learning to be in some way robust about the writing process, about the note, you know, like, because... Every, everything that you make will be scrutinized by a million eyes if you want it, want it to be, you know, if you want people to give you money. Um, and, that's, and that a lot of people will want to say something about it and that you have to find a way. And, and some, of the, some of the people who say things will say things in a really great, useful way and other people are just assholes and will say terrible things, you know, just say shit. And so you've got, what you've got to do is find a way, how, how do you navigate that and how do you use you know how do you keep if you're how do you keep your ambition about making the work as good as it can possibly be so that that's that, for me that is pretty much the process um and you know I, i'm not a great believer in sort of the auteur or the genius or any of that i, I i'm a great believer in the collective pitching in together and sometimes it needs, it may need a single vision or a unifying vision, but everyone pitching in together and through that process, mm. making the best possible thing. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I, I had another question, which I hope, I hope you feel comfortable answering. I certainly feel like in a lot of my work, I, I've had some of the best experiences when I've made mistakes or I have, mm. you know, failed horribly in, in, in front of other people. Would you feel comfortable sharing, you know, a moment in your career where something went wrong or you had a learning curve that actually ended up, you know, being oh, good you, you, you mean like yesterday or today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something's going wrong all the time, all the time. Um, you know, like, I guess for me, the thing that where projects go seriously a cropper is, you know, particularly in television, is when you're, when you're making... You know, like when the commissioner orders a show and it's different from the, and you just don't communicate effectively or you're so desperate for the commission that you're not making the same show. So, and for, for me, all of my um, most difficult experiences, like there's, there's difficult day to day because, you know, you're, like, you're dealing with massive number of people and, you know, you've got group dynamics and, you know, egos and, you know, your own ego and all of that to deal with. And, but usually you can kind of, if you don't panic too much, you can find your way through it. Uh, if you're making a different mm. show from the commissioner, you know, you know basically you, you're, you're, you're just going to experience a world of pain. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that, <laughs> that's, that's what I say. You're gonna say. But what have I learned from having gone through that world of pain? Have, what, what I can say is that if you're going through that world of pain, one thing that is useful to remember is that you don't have to carry the past with you today. You can actually have experienced something bad have, having happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can either bring it with you the very next day and carry it mm -hmm. as part of the experience, 
or you can make a decision to try to let it go and let it be the past and try to renew the experience on the, on the next day. And I think that if you can let go of the past sometimes, I mean, the past mm -hmm. gives you lessons, you have to learn from it, but, like, but you don't always have to hold on to it. And if you can let go of the past, then you can face the next day and it can be a little bit lighter. It's mm, very good advice in life, I think. Um, I'll, I'll just ask one final question. And, and um, I, I guess it was something that you said before about the long hours. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people on this call are performers and, and I think actors like to think they have long days on TV sets, but, you know, producers, they go longer and they, you know, sit up late at night watching rushes and it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a labor of love in many ways. So I'm, I'm curious, what is the thing that, you know, what is the thing that you still love about it, the thing that gets you out of bed? Maybe share it, you know, if, if you feel comfortable sharing a, a moment of like, oh, this is why I do this. For me, uh, I, I'm, you know, one of the episodes of um, Clickbait uh, that I'm working on at the moment is uh, the one that Dan, Dan Henschel stars in. And uh, there is just a scene, there's a moment that he, there's just a scene that he does towards the end of the episode that makes the whole experience worthwhile. Really, mm. really simple. Really, really simple. It's so beautiful and it's so moving and his decisions as an actor in that moment are so profound that it just, you know, it makes everything else kind of, you know, fly, fly away. All, all, all the dif difficulties just kind of disappear. And I think, it, you know, most, most of my, you know, like, watching Joan Ten in the home song stories, watching it, her performance, you know, you know, that, that is the, that is the reward for all the work. It's watch, watching a moment that you have imagined come to life. And, um, and it's particularly good if the actor makes it even better than it actually was on the page. What a, what a joyful thing for, a, you know, from a 10 year old boy who's writing stories by himself to getting to make them and, and have all these people, you know, create your vision for you. Yeah, no, I've, I've been very lucky and, you know, like, you know, life, life deals you lemons, you know. No, well, Tony, thank you so much. Thank you just for your, not just for sharing your insight into the industry, but um, just been very generous with yourself and, um, oh. you know, your personal it's, journey. It's, it's so just lovely. a, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you. It's lovely to see you. Thank you. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.